Find all your favorite movies and shows faster with Xfinity. Just speak into the X1 voice remote to search across live TV, on demand, even Netflix and Prime Video. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll enjoy Xfinity X1, which gives you access to your favorite streaming apps like Netflix, YouTube, and now Prime Video. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit the store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Pam of Café con Pam, the bilingual podcast where we feature fearless Latinas, Latinos, Latinx, minorities, and everyone who's making a difference living in the U.S. And here we discuss about your story and issues that affect all of us. This episode is brought to you by the She's All In Planner. This planner was created to organize, plan, and keep track of life in an easy, effective way. With the She's All In Planner, you can see your whole week at once, making your weekly plans easy. The week starts on a Monday, allowing you to plan your weekends together. Each day is placed vertically and has a convenient grid, so you have freedom to enter lines, circles, doodles, and anything you want. One of the best features about the Shizalin Planner is that it is a disc-bound planner, which means that you can easily remove and add more pages to it. Are you all in? Welcome to episode number nine of Café con Pam. In today's show, we are going to talk to Irma Herrera. Irma is a social justice activist. She has spent three decades decades as a public interest lawyer and a handful of years working as a journalist. A native of South Texas, she has resided in the Bay Area since 1980. She is now a playwright and solo performer of her one-woman show, Tell Me Your Name. Hi, Irma. Hello, Pam. How are you? Muy bien, gracias. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. You're visiting us in San Diego and you're leaving this weekend? I'm leaving tomorrow morning. And you drove, right? Yes. How was the drive? It's beautiful. We have a new car, so we wanted oh. to check out our Chevy Bolt. Nice. And so we drove down the coast and stopped along the way to visit with various friends. Awesome. A nice, smooth drive. Thank it's you. It's pretty to... to the coast, right? Uh, last year, I came down to San Diego for a week, and I also drove, and I was just awestruck by how beautiful our state is. All of it, you know, the agricultural yeah. fields, the hills, the mountains, yeah. the ocean, and sometimes you turn, and it really takes your breath away. Even, not even, but the vineyards in um, mm. the Central Valley, where they've now planted all these uh, wine fields, if you will, yeah. were so beautiful. They were brown and golden. That's so, yeah, awesome. It's, it's a great drive. Did you stop at the at the vine at the uh, wineries? Uh, we we stayed at a place that was right in the vineyards, but no, we weren't wine tasting. <laughs> That's fun. A, That's fun it's too. Just an overnight stop. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I want to start this show with a new question that I'm going to introduce my introduce my guest. I know you've been listening to the show. Thank you for that. Someone gave you a new question. When was the last time you smiled at a stranger? Oh, I <laughs> smiled at a stranger today. Nice. Yes, because um, I don't know if this counts as a stranger, but I went into a cafe and I ordered coffee and I didn't know the person behind the counter and he seemed like a really nice, decent young man. So I smiled at him. Did he reciprocate? He sure did. That's awesome. I, the reason why I thought about this question is because recently we are listeners. We're on the week after Thanksgiving and... 
this Tuesday was giving hashtag given Tuesday. And I was seeing all these social media posts from people giving back and, and doing all these charitable things. And I got a word. It was late. I didn't have time to plan to gift. So I thought of giving out my smile. And I was like, well, let's test it out to see how many people give back. Some did, some didn't. So now I'm curious to see when was the last time that my guest gave mm-hmm. their smile. Mm-hmm. I so that's great. I smile and be friendly towards people. That's awesome. And I talked to someone recently and he said that he's really introverted. And he said that he smiles at people to avoid having conversation, which is interesting because I smile to start a conversation. So it's all about perspective. Okay. So tell us about your story. You are from a native Texas, Texan. How long did you live in Texas? Because now you live you live in the in California. In, yep. Well, I grew up in Texas. I was born there, and I left when I was twenty-one. Okay. So I've spent two thirds of my life yeah. outside of my home state, but my family still lives there. So mm. I go back at least once, sometimes twice a year. Depends on what's going on. So I still think of myself in many ways as a Tejana. I just bought Tejana. a bunch of cow, cowgirl boots when I was in Texas. Uh, two weekends ago, and I always tell people Texas is a great place to be from. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is a very colorful state, um, but I choose not to live there, right? I moved to California, and I've been here since 1980. Wow. So this really is my home, Northern California. I've never lived in the southern part of the state. And I love so much about it. But there's also a lot of things that I love about Texas. People are very warm. Uh, it's much less expensive to much live there. Much less. Even though it's super, super hot. I like hot weather. Yeah. Uh, and I love the food. <laughs> the Tex-Mex food, yes. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> so I have divided loyalties. I am very fond of my home state. Yeah, uh, But I also love living in California, and I love the way in which this state, people have a tendency to be more open and experimental about things that are new. Mm-hmm. California is a very progressive state. Mm-hmm. Now, where, what's, uh, let's go back a little bit. Where did your family come from? Well, my family is of Mexican origin. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're Latina, you're always asked, well, where are you from? No, yeah. where are you really from? Right. Uh, but my father's family has been in South Texas for generations. Oh. And he, he was born and raised in a little border town right on the Rio Grande River when we used to go see my abuelita. I remember we would walk through her property and right up to the Rio Grande. Wow. And and then my mother's family came during the Mexican Revolution. So she was born in the United States, but uh, some of her older siblings were born in Mexico. But from my father's side of the family, we've been here for generations. Wow. And I don't have family in Mexico. Like, I didn't go see abuelitos in Mexico or primos. I have a lot of friends who go back and spend time with family. Yeah. Our roots were very much in the state of Here. Texas. But you're still you're still a, a Latina. Of and course, you, yeah. I'm a Chicana. And I grew up speaking Spanish and being very identified with being Mexicana. Even though as growing up, when my mother or older people would say, pues nuestra gente los mexicanos, and we would say, but mother, we're Americans. Yeah. And she would say, well, of course we are, but, you know, Mexicanos, as opposed to 
los americanos, which referred to white people. Yes. And or gringos or the various other words we use to describe. And that's in your yeah. <laughs> and that's in, in my your, play. your play. It's yes. in my play. Yeah, I talk about the labels we gave each other growing up and which people still use today. Totally. And I think, I mean, as, as I always said that the U.S. is a melting pot. And I think it, it I always talk about white people, mm-hmm. but it's not, I'm not being condescending or, you know, and people talk about brown people or black people, but that's not, that's right. just because we're different. Right. We're just being descriptive. Right. Right. Even though white people can be darker in skin color than we are. Yeah. And black people can be lighter in skin color than we are. So we, we all know that race is a false construct, right? Right. Yes. I mean, people are people. Totally. And race has been used to exploit difference and to keep people in states of oppression and fighting with each other. Mm. Um, so that's the reality, but people are people, and yet we do use descriptors to say, oh, you know, my friend Joe, you know, the black guy, right? Right. So my, my friend Madeline, you know, she's Asian. Mm-hmm. She's yeah, yeah, American, yeah. right? She's a Filipina girl. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I don't take offense when people describe me by my race or ethnicity. I read that someone was deeply offended, some journalist in conservative radio, because someone uh-huh. had referred to her as a gringa. Wow. It's like, come on, get real. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that they felt that was as offensive as calling someone the N-word. That's ridiculous. Wow. They took it that far. Yeah. Well, that's just ridiculous. Interesting. It's not offensive in that way. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so you grew up in Texas. Your family, you, you're a Tejana, mm-hmm. and they've been here for a long time. But you've been to Mexico? Or do you know where, like, the, the way know, back I, when? I don't. Uh, I, I mean, I've been to Mexico as a tourist, uh-huh. <laughs> but mostly to tourist places like Mexico City and That's Puerto where I grew Vallarta. up. Yes, I know. <laughs> Puerto Vallarta, Cancun. Uh, but I've never done a genealogy. I, I am very interested. I did have my DNA tested oh, last year. What are you? Just out of curiosity. Well, what, I am, Is that a question? Is that a question? Yeah. What are you? <laughs> what am I? I'm a human being. Right. But um, I'm almost 40% Native American. Which Native American, the Americas extend from yeah. the tip of the North Pole down to the, the South bottom. Pole. So I would like to do further research to know what, where in yeah. the Americas, you know, my ancestors are from. And then the vast majority of the other parts of me are from the Iberian Peninsula, you know, España, Portugal, some Greek, some North African. And I would love to do some genealogical research to learn more about the roots. What was so fascinating to me about doing my DNA was that our DNA is a testament to the fact that globalization has been going on for thousands of years. It's not like in the last 20 or 40 or 100 years I mean, it precedes the time of Columbus and Mm. the Mayflower and all of that. And so when I see that in my um, DNA there is evidence of North Africa, the the North Africans came to Spain and occupied Spain and had all kinds of things going on. The Romans occupied Spain. Parts of what is now Great Britain. Right? Yeah. So we've always had these A mixture people of coming and going, 
to trade, um, to conquer. Mm-hmm. And so that we act so shocked that globalization is changing our nations is kind of it's been happening easy because it's yeah. not new, right? That's it, so interesting. Yeah. Wow. What made you take that test? I don't know. I were curious. You know, keep seeing these things pop yeah. out. Of, yeah. You know, test your DNA. Yeah. And I was just curious, and I'm especially curious because as more attention is given to people who are about white supremacy, I start to think about. Who are these people and what do they know about themselves? Absolutely. And I would would really love it if everyone would have their DNA tested and see something about their family. I have a friend, Latina, who's been very involved in DNA testing of herself and other relatives and has been doing a long family history. Yeah. And she said she has a... um, an in-law, I think it's a brother-in-law or cousin-in-law, I don't remember exactly, who's really racist against black people. Wow. And that Is he Latino? She, or? Yes, he is Latino. Interesting. And that when she did his DNA, he had a fair amount of African ancestry. Oh, <laughs> see, everyone needs to take this test. And then she said to him, hey, dude, did you know? Yeah. You know, you're like into self-hate because totally. you've got all these prejudices about african-americans and yet some of your lineage is african you know is is from africa yeah and so i I sometimes think oh i wish these people who are you know members of the kkk or super right-wing conservative racial purists would have their dna tested no kidding a little more about really what is their racial and ethnic makeup they can learn a little yeah so i'm i'm curious uh in learning more about you know, my own ancestry, and it's not something I've ventured into, but I'd like to in the next year or two. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I want to take that test. I, I'm, I've been thinking about it, like, back and forth, because I've had friends also take it, and I'm like, you are what? You have Irish in you, you know? <laughs> yes, people are quite surprised. And I was telling a friend that I'm almost 40% Native American, and they were like, well, what? I thought you were Chicana. And I said, well, Chicanos, Latinos are a mixture yes. of the Spanish and European conquerors who came to the New World mm-hmm. and uh, raped and pillaged and mm-hmm. created a whole new group of people. Yeah, they messed So it's not surprising, right? That's correct. That's awesome. I'm going to look into that. Okay, so you grew up in Texas. And then 21, what made you move to California? Well, I um, when I finished law school... In Texas? No, I actually went to law school at the University of Notre Dame, which is in South Bend, Indiana. Well, let's go back a little bit. What made you go into law? I think what made me go into law was the civil rights movement and watching the African-American community demand their rights and seeing the ways in which they were so mistreated Mm. and the people who were out there in front talking about injustice were often lawyers. And I would look at how black treat people were treated in the United States. Where we grew up, it was two kinds of people, mm. Mexicanos and gringos. I think there were maybe a handful of African-American families in our community. There, there was not a sizable population at all. There were no Asians. And uh, we were, in fact, 
treated the way black people are treated in the South. You know, Mexicanos were the recipients of severe uh, prejudice and discrimination. Wow. And so we grew up in that environment, and I would see the civil rights movement and lawyers talk about what they wanted in terms of fair treatment for black people. And I would think, well, those are the same conditions facing our community. Right. And so that inspired me to become a lawyer. So did you face any, when you say that you grew up with the same challenges that African-Americans were dealing with, what were some of those? Well, uh, we were completely separate from white people. I mean, the schools were segregated. No way. Yes way. Yes way. I went to a parochial school. We had segregated parochial schools. I went to a 100% Mexican-American Catholic school, and there was a 100% Anglo Catholic school. Separate. Separate. And you couldn't go with, you couldn't. It never even crossed my mind that I would want to go to a school full of white people. It was just the way it was. You went to the, if you went to a parochial school, you went to the Mexican parochial school. It was associated with the church we attended. And right across the street from the parochial school was the elementary, one of the elementary schools in our town that was 100% Mexican-American. Wow. So we had the same kind of segregation as the Deep South. We had... Schools for Mexican kids, schools for white kids. And your and teachers was, were also... Well, our teachers in the Catholic school were monjitas, nuns. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they were either from the Philippines or from Spain. Interesting. And then we had one one lay teacher, Mrs. J.G. Lopez. <laughs> so <laughs> she was the only Mexican-American teacher that I ever knew. Until, wow. And then, and then I went to a public high school, and that high school was integrated because we only had one high school in my in the hometown. Town. But it was very oh segregated God. by classrooms so that white kids were in the what's now called advanced placement, but accelerated. No way. Yes way. <gasps> Except that somehow or other for some classes, I got into the classes for what were considered the smarter kids. Uh, but you're I smart. wasn't but I wasn't friends with the white kids in my school. Interesting. They were not people whose homes I went to or who I had any relationships with. Ooh. Because we didn't associate with each other. We had Totally separate social activities. We had our bailes that mm-hmm. we would go to, and they had their cotillions. Wow. So it was like two parallel universes. Yeah, completely. And, and people find that hard to believe, but that Because right really, now we're so... I think that there's still segregation, but it's, it's an integrated seg- segregation, I think. Well, there's still a lot of segregation in some communities. Yeah. And you will have African-Americans and Latinos who have very little to do with people who are anything different other than, than yeah. Yeah, their own group. Yeah. Wow. So how was you, you were placed in, in the advanced classes. Did you... How did, how did it, were you the only Chicana there? There was sometimes another Latina or a a guy. There were maybe two or three, depending on the classes. But my classes were a a combination of classes that were for kids that were college bound. And then other classes were the kinds of classes that Mexican-American kids took, like home economics, right? 
I can set the most beautiful table. I can tell you all kinds of forks and knives for, you know, this is for fish. This is for. <laughs> and that was based on your future, yeah, quote, course, quote, future career. Right, right. It, uh, a Mexican-American girl needed to know how to sew and how to cook and prepare food and uh, and serve other people, right? Besides yeah. your own family, yeah. probably. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how it worked out, but. I had a series of classes that were academically challenging in English and history. And then I had very pedestrian kind of low-level classes like math. I never took, you know, trigonometry or advanced kind of math courses. I never had a physics course. And you were asking, in what ways did prejudice show up? Well, the schools that Mexicanos, Chicanos went to were quite inferior in you know, the quality of education that we got. And so not surprising, if you're not taught well, you end up being ill-prepared to do rigorous work in high school, and then that automatically forecloses the possibility of going to college. And the other thing is, if you live in a community where very few people have been to college, where your parents have had very limited education, the chances that you yourself will go on to college in any kind of advanced degree are very remote. Absolutely. So it's almost like by accident. And the reality is that I I knew a lot of kids who were really smart and they didn't have a chance to go to college and to do all sorts of things. And I also having been to college and law school, I have been in the presence of a lot of people who are my peers who I didn't think were that particularly gifted or intelligent, but the road for them was totally greased, right? Yeah. It's like if your father is a lawyer and your mother is a physician or a librarian or a social worker, this is your path. Nobody questions that you're going to go to college and maybe go to a professional school and go on to have a career in whatever it is that people from your social group do. Right, because you already have that history. And then as Latinos who um, are often not seen in places like law firms or teaching at universities, your colleagues will ask you, well, I mean, you got away. You Mm. You were able to go. I mean, what made you different? Right. Yeah. And it's like they they want you to demonstrate. They want to believe that the only reason you got ahead is because you're so exceptional. Therefore, it's okay that other people haven't achieved Mm. because they're not that smart. Wow. But they don't expect anyone else to be smart. But a lot of people I grew up with were really, really smart and capable. But when you have limited opportunities, it's much harder and today you see that so many kids who are smart can't go to college yes. because of financial constraints. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, you maybe you can get into a good college, but if you if your parents don't have $60,000 or whatever it is to pay your tuition and to support your living expenses and you're having to get loans and work the chances that you'll be able to complete your education in a timely way go way down. Yeah, totally. So that, and, and that, of course, is what accounts for a lot of the 
economic inequality that we see growing and growing and growing with people from the middle and upper class still taking advantage of all these great mm. colleges we have all over the country and low-income people not being able to get And ahead. also not knowing. Like, I didn't know. I wish. No. I didn't know I could get grants and scholarships. Nobody told me. Mm-hmm. Nobody told me, no, I have to pay student loans. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, how did little Ima feel being having the opportunity to be in the advanced classes? So you were already there. And how, what kept you going? Because I, I would think, putting myself in your shoes, that it would be kind of scary maybe. But I don't I mean... I, I always had my, my friends that I had been through elementary school with and other people that I met in high school. Mm. And they were my community, and I hung up with them. Hung up with them. So I, I just sort of felt that, in a way, I was, uh, I was visiting those classes, and I was just passing through temporarily while I was learning things. And then you still had that your gave friends. me, yeah, that gave me an opportunity. I one of the things about growing up in Texas is you you always knew where you stood mm. vis-a-vis white people. Wow. And I felt that that's so different for people who grew up in other places like California, yeah. who grew up in a much more integrated world. And one of the things that I've always found fascinating is we grew up speaking Spanish. Even though we lived in the United States, we always spoke Spanish. It was the language of our parents. It was the language of our Familias. Yeah. So we grew up speaking it. It was never an option not to speak it. And then when I moved to California, yeah. I met so many Latinos that, that didn't don't. speak Spanish, right? They're very identified as Latinos, but they don't speak Spanish. And when you get the backstory, it's almost always the same. Our parents thought that we would be more accepted yep. and that we would fit in better if they didn't speak Spanish to us. So yes. the price of being accepted was giving up your home language. Mm. And the reality is that for a lot of people, you still weren't accepted, right? Right. And in the meantime, you've given up something so valuable. So valuable. And I have to say that perhaps the most valuable gift my family gave us was the gift of bilingualism. Mm. It's just been such a wonderful thing to have the ability to live and work in two languages and it's made it easier to learn other languages totally and i've met latinos including activist latinos who've worked in social justice and law who don't speak spanish who have a huge chip on their shoulders it's like i don't speak spanish because often as a bilingual person you meet another Latina and you start speaking Spanish yeah. to him, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then sometimes people will say, I don't speak Spanish yeah. like, with attitude. And it's like, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. about that, right? <laughs> and yeah. I now am trained to say, do you speak Spanish? Mm-hmm. And if they say no, I go, okay. Um, Let's but keep I, it in I, English I, then. <laughs> right, right. You, you, you go back and you speak only English. Uh, but I've, I've known people who have this big chip on their shoulders about the fact that They don't know Spanish. And I've often said to them, you know what? It's totally within your power to change that. Totally. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry that your parents 
didn't teach you Spanish, mm-hmm. didn't expose you to Spanish. They were doing something they thought would be helpful to you, which in fact it isn't because it's very useful to know yeah. it. But rather than just being angry about it or resentful or stewing, you know, go and learn Split Spanish. It. It's not that hard. I mean, devote yourself right. to acquiring another language and it will enrich you in so many ways. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And I do, I'm with you on the, a lot of Latinos that they're like, yeah, my parents just didn't think it was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, necessary or mm-hmm. whatever the reason. So, so interesting. Yeah. And I don't have judgment. I, I used to, I would think that's crazy, right? Yeah. And now I think, well, you know, parents, you do the best you can for your kids. Yes. And sometimes you don't get it right. And, and you, you never know. To, <laughs> yeah. and you just have to be uh, forgiving, right? Mm-hmm. It's like your parents thought they were doing right by you. It's unfortunate that you gave up something that could serve you really well. Yeah. But move on. <laughs> go learn or go it. learn it now. <laughs> if you think that it'll be helpful to you, go learn it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So, I, I want to say that I just finished listening to Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. And Trevor Noah is the guy who took over the Daily Show uh-huh. from Jon Stewart. And he was born he's and good. raised in South Africa, and he's a, a mixed-race person. It is such an amazing book. And he talks so beautifully and honestly about how stupid it is, racism, and how it's used to divide us. But he spends a lot of time talking about language. Really? And how he grew up speaking English, Afrikaans, mm-hmm. several African languages, and that that opened doors for him so to so many, many communities because his family was black. His father is white, but his was grown. He was mm-hmm. raised among black people yeah. in townships of South Africa, and because he could speak some of these African languages that opened the door of acceptance to him. And connection. He was yeah. able to connect with them. Totally. So he has a lot of beautiful uh, writing talking about the beauty of language and how language connects you. And he says how you can look so different from someone in appearance because you're of a different race or mm-hmm. background or social class. But if you speak a common language, you begin to think, well, that person is not so different from me. Yeah, he's another human. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right. I love your story. We can talk about this stuff for a long time, but we are at the coffee time. <laughs> Break time. See, one of your suggestions was to, to keep my shows a little bit shorter, but time goes by really fast. <laughs> All right, listeners. So... Let's talk about coffee. Well, today we are going to talk about the coffee of the day. And we are going to drink Café Bustelo. We are not at the moment because it's late in the day, but I'm going to give Irma her cup of coffee of Café Bustelo, and that was recommended by Michelle, or Michelle Olvera. She said it was fine if I called her Michelle, because my sister's name is Michelle, Michelle, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's those, like, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. (laughs) whichever mood you're in, that's part of the bilingualism, whatever works. So Café Bustelo is one coffee that was recommended by Michelle, and shout out to Michelle Olvera from Super Daily. She recommended this coffee, and we will enjoy that today. 
All right, back from our wonderful break <laughs> of coffee-less break. <laughs> so let's fast forward a little bit on your story. You move, you went to school for law. So we, we, we were kind of there. How was going to school in Notre Dame? Well, it was so different than any place I knew. Because you had lived in Texas the whole time. I lived, well, I lived in New Orleans for three years. After I finished college, I moved to New okay. Orleans, and I lived and worked there for three years. So I took a break from school. And then when I went what did to you do? law school, I worked as an urban planner. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, uh, How many hats have you worn in I your life? <laughs> I, I have had uh, several careers, and who knows? That's awesome. What, what else? I yeah. love that. And I think that I was um, ahead of my time because today young people will have many different careers. Yeah. And yeah. I tell them that it's a great thing, that it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to embrace and That's think awesome. about how everything you do and learn is going to prepare you for things that maybe don't even exist yet. Yeah, right? yeah. Because the, the, the economy, the economy keeps changing, and people are reinventing themselves. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to reinvent myself. So I went to law school. I even though I had been to a Catholic undergraduate university, Catholicism wasn't as imbued at. University, St. Mary's University in San Antonio, where I graduated, as it was at Notre Dame. Really? Had, it was more? In oh, my God. I had never in my life been in a school that was so heavily infused with Catholicism. Not even the Monjitas one? I don't know. Maybe because I didn't take the Monjitas so seriously and I was, <laughs> I was so young. But to go to a university and to be in a law school where some professors pray in class. Wow. They would some professors start at class with a prayer. I thought it was a joke the first time that a professor started praying. Yeah. And then I realized that it was for real. Wow. And it's a form of Catholicism that I had never experienced before. This very Irish, Italian, East Coast, Miss Midwest Catholicism. It's different than the Mexican. It, it was, it was Mexican, different than the yeah. Mexican Catholicism yeah. I had known. It was very different. Yeah. And so that was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, How many Latinos were in your class? There were six of us. Out of? Our class had 150 people. Six? Oh. There were six Latinos. How many women? Latino three. women? Three women? Uh -huh. Okay. And we're still in touch. In fact, really? one of them is a federal judge in New Mexico. And I just had dinner with her about a month That's ago when awesome. I was in New Mexico. And the other one is a lawyer in Nevada. And she and I and another friend from law school and a bunch of other friends are going to Cuba in oh, January. Oh, I'm so, jealous. I want to so hear about yeah, that trip. I stay, I stay in touch with my friends. So, yeah, there were uh, six Latinos in my class, three of us women. And there were probably 10 African-Americans, no Asians. And we shared uh, an office with uh, the BALSA, the Black Association of Law Students. So BALSA and La Raza shared an okay. office. So we stayed in touch with each other and we all became good friends. It was a really interesting experience to be in law school. Um, it was challenging. Yeah. It was uh, a lot of work. And I, but I also liked it. I, I loved studying law. 
I didn't find it. Bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason or other, it just clicked for me. And in my play, I have a, in fact, the longest scene in my play is set in law school. Really? Where I tell the story of what it's like to be in law school and the expectations that people have when you're a person of color. And I, I very openly say that I was admitted through an affirmative action program. And I had a chance to be a law student, but the work and doing the work was entirely up to me. Yeah. And either I could succeed or I couldn't. It's a choice, right? And I think that we have many forms of affirmative mm. action, including alumni preference and or the best affirmative action of all of all times is being born to middle and upper income, well-educated parents, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the best when they can provide you every opportunity to develop your intellect and guide you to higher education. Totally. So the other big shocker for me in law school was living where it was super, super cold. cold. Yeah. <laughs> that was my lived. next question. I had never lived where it was really cold. And <laughs> yeah. South Bend, Indiana is right below Lake Michigan. Yeah. So we get a lot, a lot of snow. And I remember the first snowfall was right around Halloween and it started snowing. In Halloween that yes, early? Late October Ooh. it started snowing. And at first, it's so beautiful, and you just can't believe your eyes. How yeah, the first day, <laughs> everything looks. And then when it drags on, and then when you can't open a car door because it's, it's frozen. Stuck. Yeah. Did you ever fall? Oh, a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't. I could never keep hold of my gloves. I kept losing them. Oh, because that's I the wasn't worst. Sure, you know. I didn't realize how, how important your gloves and your scarf and your hat is and your Double boots. socks. <laughs> yeah. So you've lived where it's cold, too. I lived in Missouri. Oh, Missouri. That's yes, right. Yes. So, so the weather was different. Being around people who were so privileged was mm. different. Because in South Texas, you know, I really had never had white friends. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, I was around a bunch of people. And I made really good friends from many different racial, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, well, only two, black and white. <laughs> there were no Asians at that time at our school. So, um, well, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you what, it was a shocker for you being there, but how did your parents feel when you said, well, I'm leaving? Yeah, I had already left because I That's finished right. high school very young. I finished high school at 16. Wow. And I went off to college, so... Right away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And by then, my dad had already died. And so my mother kind of always knew that I wanted to go do something else in the world. And okay. I wanted to leave South Texas and go visit the great, big, white world, which in many ways I had the already visited. The great, big, white world. That's because awesome. Because books for me... I was always an avid reader as a little girl, and books for me opened the door to the whole world. Mm. And so before I ever left Alice, Texas, I had already traveled in my mind. And your books! You Aww. know, through books, to Europe, to Africa, to Asia. You know, I traveled to the 15th century and into the future, and I just feel such love for books and the role that they played in expanding my mind and teaching me about possibilities. Mm, totally. Okay, so law school in a cold place. <laughs> <laughs> then that happened after Louisiana. Yes. 
Okay, how is living in? So you were always in warm places, and then you said, "Let's just go to a cold spot." And people ask me, "Well, how did you go to Notre Dame?" And I, I went there because someone that I knew went to law school there. I didn't know anybody who was a lawyer. Hmm. It wasn't like I could call, you know, my friends' fathers right, or to mothers give you some to give me advice yeah. about law school. But someone I had known from college had gone to law school, and he was at the University of Notre Dame. So I that called this reference. guy up, and I said, hey, I'm thinking of going to law school. And he said, come over here. I think okay. you like it. You know, here's how you apply. And that's how I ended up going there. He didn't I tell think- you about the cold. He, he did, but <laughs> <laughs> so it it isn't like I had applied to twenty schools and gone to visit schools. I showed up for class. I had never visited the campus. You know, when wow, I, that happened to me too. I yeah, never. I just, I just show up. You yes, know, I got into the school and I showed up, and there I was. Wow. So you finished law school. Do you stay there after that? No, I went to work in Washington State for a legal aid organization representing migrant farm workers. Wow. So one summer I had gone to Seattle and worked there with Evergreen Legal Services. Okay. And I worked in their headquarters, but they had a migrant farm worker unit they had just started. And I was offered a job, and because I spoke Spanish, mm. I went. It opened and, the opportunity. Correct. I okay. went and I worked in eastern Washington in the Yakima Valley, and I made wonderful friends there, and I stayed for two years, but I felt too isolated. There was mm. a large Latino population, and in fact, many of those Latinos were originally from South Texas, and they had been migrant farm workers huh. that would travel between South Texas and you know, picking crops along yeah. the way in California, Oregon, Washington. They just made and then it there. they settled in. They became settled populations. And I worked for a migrant program. Uh-huh. I was a migrant I was a migrant recruiter at some point. My oh, wow. One of the hats also that yeah, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you you too have been uh, trying out different careers. So I very much liked the people that I worked with. But I also felt pretty isolated. Mm. I was the only Latina lawyer. There were six lawyers in the office. And while there was a community of Latinos there, I wasn't part of that community. Right. And I was single and I wanted to move to a big city and be in a place where there were a lot more people you people could connect that, with right who would be part of the community and then i had the opportunity to come to san francisco to work for maldef the mexican american legal defense and education fund and that's how i got to california i got a job with maldef and i moved to the bay area their headquarters used to be in san francisco and okay. then they moved to la uh, many many years Interesting. ago yeah they moved their headquarters to la i don't know 15 years ago maybe even 20 years ago but I worked at the Malta for uh, three years, and then I left because I wanted to do something different in my life. I wanted to write. I wanted to travel. And so then I spent several years working in journalism. Uh, so what, how was the transition? Well, the transition happened this way. I was working on education-related cases, and I remember winning a case in Denver, and reading an editorial in the newspaper about how, you know, these lawyers fight on behalf of the Latino community and they're proposing bilingual education. Don't they know that 
people will be left behind if they don't speak English. And, oh. And they had the facts all wrong. And totally. It just made me so angry because we all are working towards better education for students. And bilingual education is one vehicle for teaching students content in Absolutely. their native language as they're learning English. And studies have shown that your brain gets so much more developed when you speak totally, two languages. Totally. Bilingualism is very good for your brain. And so um, I remember reading that article and feeling really upset at how misinformed the editorial board of the newspaper was. And I went back to Maldef, uh, you know, when the, the case that we had argued yeah. was was over. I went back home and I was talking to our media person at Maldef. And I said, it makes me so angry when they get these things all, all wrong. And she said, well, why don't you write an article expressing the, response reason why, to it? the reason why we do these cases? And we can submit it to the New York Times. And so <laughs> I wrote this article about the importance of bilingual education and what it hopes to achieve. And the New York Times published it. And they I picked it up. Myself, oh, I think I'll quit my job and become a journalist. Okay. <laughs> so that's how I got into writing, that I wrote an article that actually got published. And I thought, well, that can't be so hard. And also, I had uh, been to Europe for the first time the year before and had fallen in love with tra traveling. Right. And so I decided I was going to save my money and go travel for a few months and then come back and work as a writer. And so I did. I came back and I started working part-time. So writing. you said, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I done. decided to, I didn't think I was done or giving it up forever. It's that I wanted to do something different, different. Okay. for a while. And so I had some friends who thought it was a terrible idea. It was like, what? That's crazy. You know, what was your response? going to take... And I just said, I, it's what I want to do right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have my law degree. I have my license. There's nothing stopping me from going back. And people were saying, well, people are going to think you're flaky. They're not going to want to hire you and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I guess I'll just have to take my chances. What would you tell to someone who's <clears throat> thinking about that? Who's, who is at a job where they're like, you know, like you were, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm done for now doing this. I want to go do something different, but I they have that fear. Yeah. I would encourage people to take risks. I mean, to be thoughtful about what are the options they're pursuing? Why are they doing that? And I think that people admire folks who are willing to take risks and that right. often we hear from naysayers and that naysayers are people who are a bit more timid and too afraid to go out on a limb and that there's a little tinge of, God, I wish I could do that, but no way. Right. And I know lots of people who are actually not happy in their work, but it's too big a risk to leave, especially in law where a lot of people can earn really good income. It's yeah. like, I don't really love it, but it pays so well. Or I may not even like it, Yeah, <laughs> but it pays so well. And I have commitments to my family, my mortgage, you know, my desires Whatever, yeah. to live a certain kind of lifestyle. So I do encourage people to take risks, but also you have to be mindful of what are you giving up and right. you have to be willing to and where are you going? change your go? standard of living. Mm. So when I gave up practicing law and took a job, 
working as a freelance writer with a news service, I was making a lot less money, and that meant I couldn't have my own apartment. I had to live with roommates. Mm. But I also have had a lot of freedom to explore new themes, to write articles about subjects that were fascinating to me. So for me, it was a really good experience, and it served me well. And then when I decided I wanted to go back to law, and I decided I wanted to go back to law, principally for financial reasons, it was it was, it time. was hard. Yeah. It was hard to be a freelance writer. Yeah. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I have a law degree. <laughs> yeah. you know, I can go back to practicing law. And I did go back, and I ended up working with a law firm. Uh, someone that I knew introduced me to someone who was looking to hire, and that person was willing to take a chance on me. And I went back and worked in law for 20-some years. Wow. And then I left again a few years ago. <laughs> okay. So cool that you that you just take that risk, like you said. And ultimately, you want to pursue the happiness and the joy and the peace because it's not fun to wake up and dread going to work. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel really tremendous uh, passion for the work that I've done in social justice, mm. promoting the rights of the Latino community. And then the job I held, held the longest was I was the executive director of a women's rights organization, Ooh, Equal Rights Advocates in San Francisco, that works on behalf of women using the law as a vehicle for promoting fair treatment at work, for getting policies that take into account the needs for childcare, mm. for job training, and it's very rewarding work to mm -hmm. know that you are there giving voice to the needs of communities that may not have the same opportunities as others. Totally. So what would you say to that young girl, Latina, or anyone who wants to pursue law? It's possible. I have encouraged anyone who has an interest in law, especially women of color, to go to law school. It is tremendous training. It teaches you how to analyze the world, mm. how to explore the ramifications of different actions, and it's wonderful training for many kinds of careers. I know people with law degrees that have never practiced law. Interesting. They've gone on to be journalists. They work in public policy. They run businesses. It is really good training for many, many different fields. And sometimes people say to me, I'm thinking of getting an MBA. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the other possibility is getting a law degree. And while an MBA is a great degree to have, I say to people, well, you know, you can always be in business yeah, learn uh, the business on the business. Right, but you can't practice law yeah. without a law degree. So I've always been very encouraging of young women. I think it's great training for many different options uh, career-wise. And practicing law uh, can be very rewarding. And I do think that for as much as lawyers are disliked by the public at large, there is a certain respect for 
the training Mm -hmm. and knowledge that we have. And it's like, oh, well, people often dislike lawyers until they need one. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh. (laughs) What was your undergrad? My undergraduate degree was in political science. Okay. So you knew you were in that path. I've always been interested in politics and government. But today people go to law school with all kinds of degrees. People have degrees in English and Asian studies, yeah, women's studies, yeah, women's studies. So any any kind of training where you read a lot and need to think and do analysis is good training. And of course, I encourage everybody to read, read, read as much as they can because you learn so much from reading. Agree, hundred percent. What's one of your favorite books that you would recommend someone? Oh my goodness. That is a question I never like because I can never you don't, remember. Or you don't have a good, well, let's see. What was the latest book you read that you well, really liked? The latest book was the one by Trevor Noah. Uh-huh. But I read widely. I read women of color. I read people from other countries. Do I, you like novels, nonfiction I'm, or fiction? I mostly read fiction. Really? Although I do sometimes read nonfiction. I like reading memoir as well, but I uh, yeah. love reading novels. I try to read novels that have won big prizes, you know, the Pulitzer, the Booker Prize, it's a lot the about National stories. Book Awards. Yes, yeah, story. And I have a lot of friends who are writers, uh, Latinos and people of color, and I love reading their books and thinking about, you know, the subjects that they raise. Mm. Now, what are your thoughts having grown up in a really segregated place? With now the recent election and the new things that are going on, what are your thoughts of what we could become? Well, I think we're in for some really rough times. However, I know so many people who are organizing and are going to be part of this massive resistance and opposition to the kinds of policies that this administration is going to propose. Mm-hmm. And I think that the long view is that eventually this administration will not be there already. People in uh, the Trump camp who supported him are starting to say, well, wait a minute. He's appointing the kind of people to these positions that he said were the, the, swamp, the swamp dwellers he was going to get yeah, rid of, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that he's going to lose a lot of support among his base when people start to see, as they are seeing mm-hmm. right now, that it is going to be business as usual for big business. And I was really disappointed. I do think that Trump was right. The election was rigged, mm. but it was not rigged in <laughs> in the favor of yeah. the Democratic Party. It was rigged in the sense that there was a lot of voter suppression that's been going on for some time. There was all kinds of strange interference by mm. foreign governments. And it's really, really unfortunate that we have a person ascending to the highest office in our country who is completely unprepared. Completely unprepared. For the job. But we still have courts at the lower level, which is where cases start, where people will be bringing cases to fight some of these things that he is introducing. So I remain hopeful that we will be able to stop some of the really bad ideas that are floating out there. Mm -hmm. But I also 
know that people are already experiencing tremendous prejudice and mistreatment at the hands already. of folks who feel empowered by the belief that the, somehow, yeah. you know, there's this oppressed white community of people that have been disadvantaged by people of color somehow getting something that we don't deserve that right. belongs to them. And and in 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 I really understand how some of these people feel that they are mistreated and denied something because you know what our communities were denied so much for so long. We know what that experience feels like to see people have a good life and to know that that's not available to you and your folks because you didn't have you just, access to education. Yeah. You don't have access to business loans and capital. Mm. So, yeah, it really feels bad to be denied something that you think you should be able to do, like mm -hmm. have a decent job. And have a decent school for your children to attend. Yeah. Everyone deserves that. Totally. Everybody. So I wanted to ask you, since since you're a lawyer, I've when we were and then this is the last politics question that we'll have. When the election was going on, I heard a couple of people say, Well, we are tired of the politicians. We want to elect someone who isn't. And I was thinking Why would you get on a plane and say, I don't want a pilot. I want a cook. Like, does that make sense to you? <laughs> <laughs> and the answers that I would get, it, would, they, they, it still wouldn't make sense to me. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, before anyone is a politician, there's something else. Right. You don't go to school and train to be a politician, right? You go to school and maybe you're a school teacher who decides to run for school board mm. or maybe you're a physician who decides you're going to run for city council or for congress because you want to bring your expertise to the table mm -hmm. but generally in this country people start the process of becoming politicians by running for local office and then move their way upward because you start learning how government functions Works, yeah right And, yeah. that, that, that the and it's not a business. Right. The functions of government are different from business, right? We have different sectors of our Big economy. Yeah. And, you know, government is a huge employer, but government does things that the private sector cannot and should not do. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have the private sector providing security for our nation. We shouldn't have the private sector incarcerating people and making a profit. That's it. And, and now that's become huge. Yeah. I also don't think the private sector should be responsible for public education. Yes. Sure, if people choose and have the means to send their children to private schools, okay. But public education should be available in good quality to everyone. Yes, that's why and it's public. Yeah. For the public. It's public. It's for the public. The way public libraries are for the public. Exactly. Where you go and you get books for That free. are really good books, too. That you can bring home and read or <laughs> yeah. where you can go and use the internet. Yes. But yeah, it's. I think that there was and is a lot of frustration among people about the ways in which our government isn't working well and in great part it hasn't worked well because 
the Republicans have been in opposition to anything that was proposed yeah. by the administration for the past few years. So I think we're in for a long and ugly ride, but we have so many allies of all racial and ethnic and religious backgrounds mm -hmm. who I believe are going to stand up for each other. I agree. And and I think we've seen it. Yeah. And so that makes me hopeful that we will ride out these difficult times with a lot of action and activism. That's awesome. I'm actually in the planning committee for the One Million Women's March in San Diego. All right. Yeah. So well, a bunch of my friends are going to the DC Million Women March in DC and the organization ERA where I worked. Uh, is going to have a contingent, and we're going to have also a Northern California yes. march. So I can't go because that's the day I'm going to Cuba. With oh, a group of yeah. oh, well, you're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> we'll represent so. for you. I hope so. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really inspired that this march is going to happen. And I've never been to a march in Washington, so I wish I, that I were here to go, but I already had planned this trip a long time ago. Yeah, it's. I want to hear about it when you yeah. come back. So I want to talk about your play. Yes. Because we, we're, we're past our time, or we're getting close to our time. So tell us a little bit about the play, and then we'll wrap it up. So many years, I started writing a novel. Mm -hmm. And I put it on hold. And then when I left my job at Equal Rights Advocates a few years back, I decided I would resurrect the novel and get back to writing it. And I just kept getting stuck. And then I wrote a few short stories, but I wouldn't send them out for publication. It was just me trying to get myself, my writing chops back. And then a friend uh, told me, I, I was telling a friend who's a, a writer, that I felt like my creativity had all gone out the door. And she said, you should take this class with me. I have this class with this wonderful teacher. It's called Telling Our Stories, and you should sign up for it. And so I signed up for this class, but it was about telling our stories, not about writing our stories. Oh. It's about telling our stories orally. Right? Yeah. And so I took this class and I fell in love with the art form. And I found that much of what I've written in the past came back in the form of stories and it turned into my play, Tell Me Your Name. Huh. But the, the genesis of the play is that I would go into class, it met on Sundays, and you would stand up before six people and the teacher and you tell a story. And that I was often telling stories about the ways in which I felt that Latinos were um, disrespected around our names. I would hear newscasters mispronounce names in Spanish oh, and right. bend all over themselves to say French names correctly. Yes. And I think to myself, 2% of the world's population speaks French. But any well-educated person would be horrified that they're mispronouncing French names. But when it comes to Spanish names, they don't care. Right. So I, I remember hearing um, a news reporter talking about the Secretary of Transportation Federico Peña, mm. but they called him Frederico Piña. And I'm oh, yelling oh at the God. radio saying, a piña is a pineapple. <laughs> right. It's not a last name. I mean, maybe it is the last name. And then I would say, it's not where, his. where it's not his. Where are the editors in all of this? 
right? Where are the editors at NPR or mm. the television station telling the newscasters, well, wait a minute, make sure you pronounce the names correctly. It's, it's, it's respectful, yeah. Right, it's respectful. And, and yet at the same time, these same news reporters are bending over backwards to say François Hollande yeah. and uh, François Mitterrand. No one would say Mitterrand, Francoise Mitterrand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that would never fly. So uh, the, the director, David Ford, who was the teacher, uh, would say, well, you know, you're just ranting right now. Make it into a story. And so I started mm-hmm. telling stories about names Okay. And then that became my play. And as you begin to explore, and much of the storytelling class is really mining the depths of your own emotions, right? Mm. And realizing, why do I feel so sensitive about names? You know, what what in my background? And I discovered that I had an uncle. I mean, I always knew that I had this uncle, but my tío Otilio used to be called Tom at work. Interesting, because they couldn't say Otilio. Correct. And wow. When I, when I asked my father, like, well, why does Tio's shirt say Tom? And it's because they, the Americanos can't say his name at work. Otilio. And I thought, well, why doesn't Tio teach them? <laughs> right. And then I realized that some people don't want to be taught. It's like they don't care what your name is. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'll tell you what your name right. is. Right. Right. Yes. You, you know. Your Tom. And so the more I started looking into this, the more vignettes that came up. And then I'm also very uh, aware of other people's names from other cultures. Mm. It isn't just about Latinos. So the final scene in my play is actually at a Vietnamese nail salon. Oh. Where most salon workers will tell you that their name is Cindy. Patty or Cindy or, you know, yeah. Joan. Yeah. But that's not. That's so funny because I do ask the ladies, like, what's like, okay, your name is Patty, but what's What's your your real real name? name? And sometimes (laughs) they'll tell you, and sometimes they'll say, My name is too hard. Yes. Just call me Patty or Tina. And then you have to decide whether you want to press or you're respectful, or you're just going to respect that that's the choice they're making. Mm -hmm. I have a story where a friend of mine who's a lawyer was. Um, assigned to work on a case with another lawyer from Southern California. And this lawyer's name is Irma. Okay. So she called this lawyer and said, hi, my name is Cheryl. We're going to be co-counsel. I wanted to just say hello, Irma. And the woman said, my name is Irma. Wow. Not Irma. And my friend Cheryl says, oh, well, I have a friend whose name is spelled the same as yours, but she pronounces it Irma. Right. And this woman says, well, but my name is Irma. And so then my friend Cheryl says to me, I wanted to tell her, you don't need to be oppressed. You know, yes. you can say your name. And I said, Cheryl, you just have to let it be. Yeah. Everyone gets to decide how their name is pronounced, right? That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and if somebody wants to say it that way, that's up to them. So all of these stories found their way into my play. And one of the real wonderful benefits of my play is that so many people have shared stories after they see my play about their names. I'll give you one. Tell me. (laughs) I think I've said it in the podcast before, but I, yeah, I said it last with Pops. I said it, Uh I think, on my last one. I went to, I have so many about my last name (laughs) because it's hard. 
but I went to a headquarters of a big company and the, the greeter, it was a, a it was like a lot of security. Mm -hmm. So you had to sign in, get a badge, and then you had to scan the badge every time you went into each door that you went through. And in order to give you a badge, you have to give your ID. Mm -hmm. And so the, it, it was an older, older lady, probably pat, like almost 90, I would say, older. And she she saw my, my driver's license and she said... She couldn't read it, obviously. And she was like, you need to get married so I can say your last name. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> like, what if I marry someone whose name is harder? And whose name you don't want to take. Right. For whatever reason. Right. You choose not to take. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. No, people share all kinds of name stories. And recently I was, uh, I had a phone conversation with a financial planner and we had exchanged email. Mm -hmm. And so when she called me at the appointed time, I said, hello, this is Irma. And she said, oh, hi, Irma. This is Tamika, blah, blah, blah. And I said, let me stop you. My name is pronounced Irma. And she said, oh, uh, well, I don't think I can say it. I can't roll my R's. And I said, really, you can't say it. Just close, you know, yeah. close your eyes and don't look at the spelling of my name and just repeat after me. I said, it's Irma. And she said, oh, I don't think I can say it. And I said, now tell me the spelling of your name. And so she said, T-O-M-I-K-A. I said, oh, Tomika. <laughs> and she said, no, it's Tamika. And I said, I don't think I can say it. Do you mind if I call you Tamika? And she said, Ooh. but that's not my name. Wow, and that's powerful right silence. there. silence. Yeah. And then there was complete silence. And I said, and my name is Irma. So can you try and say that? And she said, Irma? I said, yeah, you got it perfectly. So we then had our little consultation. Two days later, she wrote me and she said, I watched your video, your interview. I had done an interview with a radio station right before my play. And she said, I listened to the interview you did. And she said, I want to just thank you for teaching me the importance of saying someone's name correctly mm. and is it okay with you if I share the interview you did with my colleagues in Cincinnati and I said of course you can share it please do <laughs> yeah, by all means <laughs> but people are often very resistant to yeah. something that's unfamiliar and it's like you don't want to sound wrong and so you say I can't say it and you you know him and haw but really if you just try 99% of the time, people get it exactly right. And if they can't get it exactly right, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, a close approximation. Right. At least they're trying. It's about making the attempt to get someone's name right. And I meet people with names I've never heard or seen, and I have to ask them to tell me several times. Yes. There was a young colleague of mine who's now, she's now a law professor, but her name is Jayshree. J-A-Y. And I love interesting names, too. Yeah, she's, you know, South Asian Indian woman. And I remember people saying, oh, you know, the Indian woman with that name. What is it? And I go, it's Jayshree. It's yeah. not that hard. Just right. Get Try it. Get it, it in your mind. Jayshree. You don't, don't tell yourself. It's too hard. Yeah. Just say okay. it three times. Say it and teach, <laughs> teach me how to say it. Absolutely. Teach me how to say it. Totally. That's, that's so cool. So that's what my play's all about. It's stories about names and why we feel so, you know, 
tied to our names. It's the it's one of the first words we hear over and over when we're babies. Yes. Our parents saying our name with great love and affection for us. Totally. One thing that's funny because I always ask people who have, I mean, interesting last names, Ukrainian or and they always flip them to sound more I don't want to say American, but like easier to pronounce. Yeah. And I always ask them, but how do you really pronounce them? Like if it's a German last name, like how do you really say it? Mm -hmm. And then they say it and I'm like, that's so beautiful. And they laugh at me and I'm like, but you don't understand. (laughs) That's so beautiful. You know? So I I love that. I love that about names. And I, that's something that I, I remember telling my sister, because she would say Covarubias, uh-huh. and I never did. I, I would say Covarubias, and if, if I'll spell it for you, I'll teach you how to say it, but that's my last name, right. you know, and she now says Covarubias. Well, <laughs> she now has a different last name. <laughs> one thing that I've always felt is, why should I mispronounce my own name? Right. right? If you can't say it, I understand, but why should I mispronounce my own name? Absolutely. Does it make any sense? There is one thing I want to say, and that is uh, last year, the National Association of Bilingual Educators and some school districts started a campaign to convince teachers to really work at saying children's names correctly. So cool. That's awesome. That's really it's important. important. Yeah. Yeah, because it helps you with your identity. Wow. All right. So listeners, we could stay here and talk for more and more time, but... We got things to do, and Edema is a busy woman, so I want to respect her time. And where can we find more about you? Where can we, where do you perform your play? Well, I'm next going to perform in Berkeley um, at a place called The Marsh, but I'll be performing in Fresno okay. uh, two weekends. I have five shows. I'm wow. part of the Fresno Rogue Festival, the first and second weekends of March. And I'm planning to take my show to various cities in the Southwest. So check out my website. It's www.irmaherrera.com. And you can also see excerpts of my play. And I'll probably outpost this podcast interview on my website as well. So check that out. Yeah. And... So do you have Twitter, Facebook, or I right do. now? I do. I'm not an active user of Twitter, but my Twitter is uh, my Twitter name is Irma Diarrera. Okay. And I also have Instagram and Facebook page, and my Facebook page is Irma Herrera Writer. Okay. And so people are welcome to check that out. But if you go to my website, it gives links to all those other social media. And I'll have them on the show notes. That too. I, I'm just learning to use because okay. I'm not a very We're uh, with you on active that. user of social <laughs> media. You know, you had asked, you ask other people for quotes that they like. Yeah, I'm not there yet. I'm not oh, there yet. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to end without telling you. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll ask you the two final questions. Is this, now I wanted to ask you, because we went through your whole story. Is this is the play all you do now? Are you doing any other well, projects? I have been working part time with the organization that I love and where I worked, Equal Rights Advocates. But moving forward, this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be uh, looking for new places to take my play. Okay. I'm going to be writing blog, you know, blogs and. Um, yeah. You want to continue writing? I want to continue with my writing. I have other okay. plays I want to write, but for now, I really want to get better as a performer and storyteller. 
And uh, I think you're awesome. I watched the yeah. little ten Thank ten minute. You. Thank you. Yeah, it's so cool. So we'll have all of your social media, your website, your everything on the show notes, and we'll make sure that people support you. If any of you listeners are near Fresno or Bakersfield, no, Fresno or Berkeley, Berkeley, <laughs> then go support Edma. All right, the two final questions <laughs> you've been waiting for. Your favorite quote. What's your favorite quote? I have several, but one quote that just always sticks with me was, it was a tiny little plaque I saw in Cuba. Hmm. How many times have you been to Cuba? I only went once. I went about five years ago with a group of judges and lawyers. And it was a quote from Jose Martí. And it's in Spanish. And it says, la verdad, una vez despierta, no vuelve a dormir. Ooh. And, you know, roughly translated is, the truth once unearthed or awoken will never again be sleeping. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like once the truth comes out, you can't right, hide it. Right. So I love that quote a lot. It's powerful um, in Spanish. Yeah, it is. It Some is. things it's are. Hard to, it's hard to translate, but it's a beautiful yeah. quote in Spanish. La verdad una vez despierta no vuelve a dormirse. Then the other one that I really love is a very simple one from Maya Angelou, and it's if you get, give. If you learn, teach. Oof. It's so simple. I had the privilege of traveling to South Africa many years ago, and I remember visiting Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela and all these other political prisoners were held for scores of years. Yeah. And very much how they lived with a philosophy of each one, teach one. Mm. You know, there's so much we can impart to other From, people. That's right? why we're here. Spread ideas, move people, man. Ideas move people. <laughs> I love that about your uh, website logo or uh, my motto, tagline. My tagline. tagline. Yes, motto. yes, yes, yeah. totally. That's awesome. Well, thank you for the two quotes. We'll post them on the show notes as well. And the last question is, what's your favorite re- remedy or home, yeah, home remedio? <laughs> remedio, ponerme VIX. <laughs> do, you, do you have that one? We just had Maryland. That, that was her. Oh, VIX vapor rub all yeah, over. All over. I, I, that's very Latino. <laughs> and that's one of the things that she said. She was like, every Latina mom, she'll have VIX. Yes, that's right. And I always carry VIX with me. But I, I always remember, uh, you know, las curas de susto. Mm. I don't myself partake of them. But um, I've always thought of curanderismo as so much a part of Mexican-American identity. Big time. And the, the belief in things outside of your control in a way, it's like poor people's therapy, right? Yes. You go to therapy to talk about the things that aren't working in your life, but you use curanderismo to uh, rid yourself of bad things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Do you remember the egg? Oh, the egg, the sweeping with this, the broom. <laughs> There's an artist that I, I love, Carmen Lomas Garza, who's a Chicana artist who grew up. Uh, very close to where I did, but she lives in the Bay Area, and she does these beautiful paintings of very typical Mexican scenes. And one of them is a curandera sweeping somebody, and then she's got That's other funny. other paintings of you know tamaladas, families making tamales. But yeah, put something about her on your on your. I post. will. I'll reach out to Carmen her. Carmen Lomas Garza. Do you know her personally? Uh huh. Okay. Well. Yeah, I'll introduce you to her too. Perfect. She's a really well-known artist, Carmen Lomas Garza. And I just came back from 
San Francisco. Right on. I like San Francisco. It's a wonderful place. I, I mean, I went to all over, like San Francisco, San Jose, Sacramento. No, not Sacramento. Um, Stockton. Uh-huh. Um, all the, the whole, the whole bay, North Bay, Bay yeah. Area. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank you, Irma, so much for coming. I know you're a busy, busy woman. You have a gracias, Pam. Thank you, gracias a ti. You have a, a busy schedule. Thank you for sharing about your play. That's so cool. I want to have the opportunity to to see it live. Maybe I'll bring it to San Diego sometime this next year. I'm totally. For other places to take my play. What well, we're looking for our program. Oh, you won't be here. You'll be in Cuba. But we'll talk. <laughs> I'm involved in the community, so we'll talk. Excellent. And thank you again for being here. You're doing so inspiring, your story. Gracias. Gracias a ti. All right, listeners, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Leave me a review. I continue to get emails, texts, and people talking to me about my about the shows, and they tell me, and I... I am so appreciative and grateful for your your feedback. It would mean a ton if you leave me a review on iTunes because iTunes looks at that. And if they look that people are leaving your reviews, then they're going to recommend it to other people. Then more people will be able to get moved by the spreading ideas of Café con Pam. So we are on iTunes, t- Stitcher, and SoundCloud if you are on your mobile device and you want to recommend it to someone. And I want to give a special shout out to Henry Castro for the production of this show and for our wonderful song of the show, Negrita Bailadora. And I love your song. Thank you. <laughs> thank you to Henry. He composed it. He's the, the magic man that makes all of this happen. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do it without you, without Henry. And for the show notes, visit spreadideasmovepeople.com forward slash podcast forward slash nine. So you can see what Irma is all about. So you can see the little video of her show. So you can get a little bite-sized thing of her, of what she does. And you can look for more. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. And stay shining, people. Find all your favorite movies and shows faster with Xfinity. Just speak into the excellent voice remote to search across live TV, on demand, even Netflix and Prime Video. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. This February, history will be made. Millions will watch as 80 years of unjust stigma is left in the past. A product that drove good people to the black market will be revealed as one that's creating a new global market. This February, what inspired the symbol of counterculture will at long last be seen as just culture. The new normal is coming. Will you be one of the first to see it? Visit medmen.com to watch an exclusive preview.